This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you so much for joining us this week as we dive into another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we get into it, as always, thank you for being here. Always so nice to see you. How's everything going with you? Everything's on the mins over here, you know? Feeling sick last week. Still got a little bit of a weird voice, but um, I'm on the mins. Things are going better at the house. Everything's working. I got internet again. Lights are working. All is peaceful. How are you? I'm good. I cannot imagine in 2022 waking up not having power, internet. It would be like being sent back to the dark ages immediately. Not only, you know, I found myself complaining about it, you know, being like, this is definitely first world problems, but usually it wouldn't be a big deal. I'd be at work, but I was home in bed for four days with no TV because I don't have cable. And so I can only stream. And of course, you can use the hotspot and everything, but I'm not that tech savvy. So it was basically like I had no internet, no hot water. Some of my lights worked. Some of them didn't work. I mean, it was just, it was not fun. But now we're on the mins. Everything's working. I got these new fancy lights that change colors, so I'm great. Setting the mood for a true crime podcast. I love it. Okay. And I'm glad everything's up and running. Uh, I'm glad that you are feeling better. Last week, you came at me hard. You brought a very shocking case. If you haven't listened to that episode, pause it, go back and listen to episode eight before you jump into this one. So I am trying to come even harder. And I just realized that's some weird phrasing. (laughs) But I'm not taking it out. I'm leaving it in. So I feel like we're having a friendly competition here. Who gets the more gory cases? And that's the other thing, too, is I don't want people to think like we're just going for shock value. But I'm literally trying to find cases that I haven't heard of or you know that may be a little lesser known in the you know the netflix documentaries and stuff like that and i feel like we've just been really lucky at finding some pretty shocking cases that we didn't know about so hopefully if you're listening to this at home or in your car or whatever hopefully you're enjoying it and i promise you we're not trying to be as shocking as possible it's just these cases are crazy so this week we are talking about the candy man of texas dean coral And I had never heard about this case before. In fact, 
this case actually happened before the term serial killer was invented. So we're going to be diving into Dean Coral and what they called the mass murders of Houston. So really excited. Again, if you're listening at home, I think you're going to like this one. I, I think it's going to be a heavy hitter. What do you say we just go ahead and jump on in? Yeah, let's get to it. I don't, I've never heard of this one. So I'm excited to hear about it. All right. Well, our story begins in August of 1973 on the southeast side of Houston, Texas. 13-year-old James Stranton Dramala was riding his bike on a Friday night looking for returnable bottles. The Dramalas lived in a modest middle-class neighborhood which bordered Pasadena, Texas. James had a stable family life. His mother was a stay-at-home mom who cared for him and his sister Michelle, and his father was a college professor. James would ride to the local 7-Eleven, the bowling alley, and other neighborhood hotspots, hoping to return enough bottles to make money to take his girlfriend out. That's so cute. I know. I remember being like 13, having a girlfriend. You were always looking for ways to get a little bit of money so you could feel like you were doing something fancy. Where you grew up, were you guys able to return soda bottles and stuff for the deposit? No, Louisiana is not one of those five-cent states. Ah, so I grew up in Michigan, and Michigan is a 10-cent Michigan state. Is a ten, yeah, Iowa was a five-cent, but Louisiana is not one of them. Yeah, so I remember we had a big garbage can at the bottom of our stairs, and then whenever you finished a, a pop, as they call it in Michigan, mm-hmm. you would just throw the bottle down the stairs in the trash can. And then once it was full, it was a race between me and my three siblings to be like, who gets to take them back? <laughs> I remember being a broke young man several times and like eating and buying cigarettes and stuff from pop bottle money. So that's hilarious. I could definitely relate to that. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to take you away from your story, but I thought that was cute. No, it is very cute. And Dramala's father had given him permission to go on the ride, but his mother was concerned. James assured his mother that he wouldn't be gone long, but to his parents' shock, James never returned. Over the following days, the Dramalists searched high and low for James. They checked the bowling alley, parks, and anywhere else they thought their son could possibly be. The family turned to the police for help, but in Texas at this point in time, a child had to be missing for 48 hours to report. Otherwise, it was looked at as a runaway. Now, this infuriated the Dramalists as James had never ran away before, and he had no reason to at the time of his disappearance. What the Dramalists were unaware of was that 20 miles north in the Heights area of Houston, Dozens of other teens and young men had also disappeared. Jeffrey Conan disappeared in September of 1970 while hitchhiking home from college. While it may be unthinkable now, hitchhiking was a common practice during this time in the 70s. In fact, hitchhiking was still fairly popular into the 80s, but it slowly declined as people became afraid that a crime may occur. Did you ever attempt to hitchhike when you were a kid? No. I barely made it in the 80s. Like I barely, I was barely born in the eighties. I mean, I've st- stood on the side of the street and held my thumb out, pretending like I was hitchhiking, but never truly for anybody to pick me up. I remember being in like fourth or fifth grade and getting mad at my mom and being like, "I'm running away." <laughs> and I walked up and down the street in our subdivision and was like, had my thumb out, and it was all just my neighbors being like, "What is he doing?" <laughs> John will take you home, okay? Right, I <laughs> know where you home. live. <laughs> Three months after the disappearance of Jeffrey Conan, 14-year-old James Glass and Danny Yates went missing after a church rally. The following January, brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop disappeared. The Waldrop boys had been dropped off at a friend's house by their father to discuss forming a bowling league, and when they learned that the friend wasn't there, they began to walk home, but never made it. In March of 1971, Randall Harvey went missing. He was last seen riding his bike to work. Then in May of 1971, 13-year-old David Hillegas and 16-year-old Mally Winkle were abducted. Additionally, almost 20 more teenage boys and young men were reported missing between 1970 and 1973. These disappearances included Reuben Haney, Frank Aguirre, Mark Scott, Johnny Ray DeLome, Billy Bulge, Stephen Sickman, Roy Button, Wally Simino, Richard Hembry, Willard Branch, Richard Kepner, Jeffrey Lyles, William Lawrence, Raymond Blackburn, Homer Garcia, John Sellers, Michael Botch, whose brother Billy went missing the year before, Marty Ray Jones, and Charles Cobble. So we're talking in the span of a year, this many boys have gone missing. It's kind of crazy. That's a lot. And this is all in the same town? All in the same area, in the Houston Heights area. Wow. 
Now, according to Andy Cahan, the current director of victim services and advocacy for Houston Crime Stoppers, many of these cases did not get the attention they deserved. Cahan has discussed the time period that these events took place in and points out that there was A, no internet or cable, B, there was no cell phones, and C, there was no victim advocate services. Because of this, the pieces weren't put together and a lot of these disappearances were classified as runaways. There were isolated searches done, but the cases were never publicly linked. Because of this, the community had no idea what was happening in their own backyard. That is crazy. There's just, that's just so many young boys going missing. And I'm assuming they're all around the same age, 13 to 16 or so. Yeah, we'll jump into the ages a little bit more because it does play a, a big part in the story as we go on. What is really fascinating to me, especially in the world that we live in, is we're used to systems that connect to each other, national databases, things like this. And, you know, in 1970... The world just didn't operate like that. So things could be happening that now we could very clearly say these things are linked. But back then, police departments, things like that didn't work together the same way, you know? Right. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Dean Coral. In the mid-1960s, Coral Candy Company sat across the street from an elementary school in the Heights area of Houston. Dean Coral was running the company, which was originally founded by his mother, Mary Emma Robinson. Coral ran the shop the majority of his adult life, only leaving for a 10-month stint in the military. He was honorably discharged from the United States Army in June of 1965. Now, Coral was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on December 24, 1939. Coral's father, Arnold, was strict with his children, but his mother was quite protective of Dean and his brother. Coral's parents argued frequently, and they divorced in 1946. Mary sold the family home and moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Coral's father had been drafted into the Air Force and was stationed in the area, so this allowed the Coral boys to be near their dad. Dean Coral was a shy, serious child who rarely socialized with other children. At age seven, he suffered an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever, which was not found until doctors discovered Coral had a heart murmur in 1950. And I did want to pause there because with your background of what you do as a nurse practitioner and things like that, I thought you might know a little bit more about this than I do, which is absolutely nothing. But what exactly is rheumatic fever? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, honestly, we learn about it in school and I know it can affect your heart and your bones and your joints, things like that. But it's not something that I've ever treated and it's not something that they really teach you to treat. Um, so I'm not, I'm not the expert in rheumatic fever, but I know it can affect your heart. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it's just one of those things that, you know, maybe used to happen a lot in the fifties before mm -hmm. medicine and technology kind of advanced. Yeah. Cause you would have like rheumatic fever or scarlet fever, a little bit less yellow fever here in the States, but it's just basically an illness that attacked the body basically. Well, thank you for shedding some light on that. Cause I did not know. You're welcome. Correct me if I'm wrong. Ladies yeah, if, <laughs> if we're not right, let us know. You know how to do it. So now Coral's parents attempted reconciliation and were remarried in 1950. They moved to Pasadena, Texas. The second marriage was short-lived, and in 1953, the pair divorced again. Coral's mother then remarried a traveling clock salesman named Jake West, and the family moved to Vidor, Texas. It was in Vidor that the Coral's mother and stepfather opened a small candy company run out of their home. From a young age, Coral would work for the candy company after school and on the weekends. He would run the candy-making machines and package the product, which his stepfather would sell on his sales route. From 1954 to 1958, Coral attended Vidor High School. He was regarded as a well-behaved student, but also considered somewhat of a loner. In 1960, Coral moved back to Indiana to care for his widowed grandmother. During this time, he met and formed a close relationship with a local girl. Now, she actually proposed to Coral in 1962, but he declined. Coral then returned to Texas later in 1962 to help with a candy company, which had moved to Houston Heights at the time. Now, again, Houston Heights is where all of these disappearances are happening a couple of years later. Right. Coral's mother then divorced West in 1963, and she started the Coral Candy Company. Dean Coral was appointed vice president. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company moved to 22nd Street, directly across from Helms Elementary. Now, Dean Coral was known to give free candy to the local children, in particular, teenage boys. This behavior earned him the nickname, The Candy Man. In 1967, Coral befriended 12-year-old David Owen Brooks. So what's running through your head at this point, Olivia? Mom made the biggest mistake 
when she moved the candy company to 22nd Street. As soon as you said that and it was across from the elementary school, I knew it was going to be all downhill from there. And how old is Coral at this point? Uh, so at this point, it is 1967, and he was born in 1939. So at this point, he would have been 28 years old. Okay. I just know it's all going to go downhill from here. If he's friending the teenage boys, and now you're saying he friended a 12-year-old, and now he's the candy man, it just sounds like a, like a pedophile. Let me lure you here with some candy, little boy. It's definitely strange. You know what I mean? To be a, a 28-year-old man, you're making friends with a 12-year-old kid, you know? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about David Owen Brooks. So David Owen Brooks was 12 years old and in the sixth grade in 1967. Brooks wore glasses and was one of the students that Coral would regularly give free candy. Brooks and other children would hang out near the candy shop, and Brooks became a close companion to Coral. He would travel with Coral, along with other kids, to the beaches of South Texas. Brooks had stated that Coral was one of the first people who didn't mock his appearance, and whenever Brooks needed money, Coral would provide it. This led Brooks to see Dean Coral as a type of father figure. In 1969, at Coral's urging, the relationship turned sexual. Brooks would be paid in cash and other gifts if he would allow Coral to perform oral sex on him. Brooks' parents divorced, and his mother moved about 85 miles away to Beaumont, Texas. In 1970, when Brooks was 15, he dropped out of high school and moved to live with his mother in Beaumont. He would visit his father in Houston, and on these trips, he would visit Dean Coral. Coral would allow Brooks to stay if he needed, and later that year, Brooks actually moved back to Houston. Now, by Brooks' own admission, he began to see Coral's apartment as his second home. It's at this point that Coral would enlist Brooks to bring him teenage boys. Coral paid Brooks in cash and a Corvette for his assistance. In 1971, Brooks introduced Coral to Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. Coral believed Henley Jr. to be useful and may also be able to help him procure teenage boys. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. Because before we dive into the meat of the story, I think it's really important that we know all of the players that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. So Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. was born in Houston in 1956. He was the oldest of four sons born to Elmer Wayne Henley Sr. and Mary Pauline Henley. His father was an alcoholic who would physically abuse him, his brothers, and his mother. But despite the abuse at home, Mary Henley tried to make sure her boys received a good education and stayed out of trouble. The couple divorced in 1970 and Mary retained custody. Henley started off as a good student, but after his parents' divorce, he took a series of menial part-time jobs to help his mother financially. His grades began to drop severely, and by the age of 15, he had dropped out of high school completely. He would later begin to rack up a criminal record. Henley was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon in 1971 and burglary in 1972. Now, during his time in high school, he became acquainted with another teen, David Brooks. Brooks was a grade behind Henley, and Henley had become aware that Brooks was spending a lot of his free time with this guy, Dean Coral. Brooks introduced the two, and at first, Henley was oblivious to the true nature of their relationship. Henley admired Coral for his hard work, but also suspected that Coral may be a homosexual. Because of this, Henley believed that Brooks was simply hustling Coral. Now, in 1971, Henley began spending more time with Coral. Coral told Henley that he was involved in organized theft. Coral, Henley, and Brooks robbed several homes, and Henley was paid in small sums of money. On one occasion, an apparent test of character, Coral asked Henley if he would be willing to kill if needed. Henley replied simply, yes. So I wanted to stop and kind of get your thoughts as to what's going on, because to me it seems very much like it's a grooming process, and I didn't know if you were thinking along the same lines. First off, I have a lot to say. I want to go back to Brooks. Brooks had this opportunity to be done with Coral. He moved away to Beaumont, Texas. He didn't have to come back and forth. And when he did come back and forth to see his dad, he didn't have to go see Coral. And so I'm just confused as to why he continued to choose going down that route. And then second of all, making this some sort of like heist where he brings in his classmate, Henley. So from what I understand, with Brooks's parents being divorced, he didn't have much of a father figure. And right. like a lot of grooming situations, it starts off like, here's some money. What do you need? I've got you. You know, I look out for you and you start to build that relationship of, you know, oh, this person is there for me, takes care of me, almost like a father figure. And then 
when that person then wants to turn that relationship sexual because there's now that power dynamic and because you don't want to let this person down. You continue to come back. Right. And I, I mean, especially, I mean, we're talking at the time the kid's 15. Right. I mean? He has no idea. And this is in the 70s where people don't talk about things like this. A hundred percent. And to answer the second question, in doing my research, Henley may have originally been introduced to Coral as a potential boy to procure, but he saw something in him. He was like, there's something about this kid. Right. So then he turned him into another Brooks, essentially, using him to help him with his crimes and stuff. Right. And again, it's where that grooming process, I think, comes in. Yeah. So like oh, you need money? I'm involved in organized theft, so I can get you this money. What do you need? I can be the guy to make sure you have everything that you need. And then it gets to a point where it's like, okay, I'm giving you this. You got to do something for me. Right. Or if I need you to kill someone, would you kill someone for me? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So it definitely seems like sexual abuse that stems from psychological abuse. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, at this time, Henley was aware of the disappearances happening in the area. Henley actually knew two of the boys who had vanished, David Hillegist and Gregory Malley Winkle. Both boys had disappeared while walking to a local swimming pool. Henley had even helped post missing child posters for Hillegist's parents. In the winter of 1971, when he was 15, Henley was again taken by Brooks to meet Dean Coral. Henley was told there was a way for him to make some money. Once at the residence, Coral told Henley that he belonged to an organization based in Dallas, which recruited young boys for a sex slavery ring. Henley was offered the same $200 fee as Brooks for any boy that he could bring Coral. Now, Henley later told police that he originally ignored Coral's offer, but because of his mother's struggling financial situation, Henley needed money. Henley met with Coral at his home to devise a plan. The pair decided that they would lure a boy back to Coral's home. Once there, Henley would show the victim a, quote, magic trick, where he would put handcuffs on behind his back and then free himself. They would then offer to show the victim how to do it, leaving him trapped. With the plan in place, Henley and Coral began driving around Houston Heights. At a corner, Henley persuaded a young man to come back to Coral's house with the promise of smoking some pot. Once at the residence, Henley helped con the victim into wearing the handcuffs. That's when Coral pounced. Coral bound the victim's feet and placed duct tape over his mouth. At this point, Henley left the victim alone with Coral, thinking that he would be sold into the sex slavery ring. The next day, Henley was paid $200. Now, I wanted to ask you, because we're talking 1970, $200. is a lot of money for a 15-year-old boy. Right, and especially if you take a look at what it's valued at today. So adjusted for inflation for 2022, $200 in 1970 equals about $1,437 today. That's insane. I feel like there's no sex slavery ring. That's where my mind's going with this. Oh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later too, because shit gets crazy. So, (laughs) And this is so easy. I mean, Coral's got it figured out. He's got these 15-year-old boys running around. He knows you know, these younger kids are trusting these 15-year-olds. They're probably classmates of theirs. It's easy money. You know, hey, let me show you this magic trick. Yeah, and especially when they're boys from broken homes that are abused. You know, mm-hmm. again, they're just looking for someone to look out for them. And now they have this steady income, and it's coming from a person who supposedly, you know, cares about them or is looking out for them. So it's it's dark in a lot of ways. Now, the identity of this first victim that Henley helped abduct is still unknown. So now we're going to go ahead and fast forward to August 8th of 1973. Henley arrives at Coral's home with a potential victim, 19-year-old Timothy Curley. Curley was told that there would be a party at Coral's home, but before Coral had the opportunity to attack, Henley and Curley left to get sandwiches. Now, a little while later, they returned, but now had 15-year-old Rhonda Williams with them. Coral was furious that Henley had brought a girl to the home. In private, he told Henley that he had ruined everything. But on the surface, he remained calm. Coral waited until Henley and the other teens fell asleep from drinking and smoking. Curly and Williams were both bound and gagged. Henley was handcuffed and awoke to find himself laying next to the other teens. Coral dragged Henley by his cuffed hands into the kitchen and placed a twenty-two caliber pistol against his stomach. Henley pleaded for his life, promising to participate in whatever was planned for Williams and Curly. Coral agreed, and Henley was released. They then carried Curly and Williams into Coral's bedroom 
and were tied to opposite sides of a plywood board. Curly was tied face down, Williams on her back. At this point, Coral handed Henley a long hunting knife and instructed him to cut Williams' clothes. Coral told Henley that he would rape and kill Curly, and Henley would do the same to Williams. Coral then laid the 22 caliber pistol on a table and climbed on top of Curly. As Coral began to assault and torture Curly, Henley began to cut away Williams' clothes with a knife. As he did so, Williams lifted her head and asked, is this for real? Henley told her yes. Williams then asked, well, are you going to do anything about it? Now, Henley later said that this question awoke something in him. In an interview, he said, somebody depending on me to do something about it was just enough. Henley grabbed the 22 caliber pistol from the table. He pointed it at Coral saying, Dean, this has gone far enough. Coral turned, raised his arms above his head, and rushed Henley, shouting, Kill me, Wayne! Kill me! Now, Tim Curley described Coral's demeanor in that moment changing into something that he would describe as demonic. Henley pointed the gun, pulled the trigger, and emptied every round into Coral. Coral tripped into the hallway, slid down the wall, and lay dead on the floor. Henley released Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams. He then called Pasadena police to report the shooting. Only Henley and David Brooks knew what would come next. So I want to stop you right there. What is going through your head? Because as I was researching the story, I was like, this is insane. This is absolutely nuts. I want to know what Henley and Brooks thinks would come next. So at this time, I'm assuming they're still 15, 15, 16, 17, maybe, because we jumped two or three years. But I was not anticipating that henley would have turned on coral so soon i mean i know it's been a few years at this point but it seemed like they were just getting started and so i'm expecting like more of this torture and kidnapping to go on and on and on and just like that coral is gone and now what like i'm just kind of i'm i'm kind of confused right now not confused but i'm just like i got a big question mark going on in my head right now i'm not sure what comes next well, I think that's what we should jump into because it's obvious that something has been going on these last couple of years. Yeah. But the full extent, I don't think anybody is really prepared for. Yeah. So on the evening of August 8th, Henley confessed to police that for almost three years, he and David Brooks had helped procure teenage boys for Dean Coral. Some of these boys had actually been friends of Henley and Brooks. Henley stated that since the winter of 1971, he had actively participated in the abductions and later the murders of the victims. Henley informed police that Brooks had been an active accomplice for even longer than him. Henley detailed how he and Brooks were each paid $200 for each victim they were able to lure to Coral's residence. Henley then began to paint the nightmarish picture of the crimes committed, both by Coral alone and the crimes Brooks and Henley were accomplices to. It's at this point that Henley led police to a gruesome scene. Detectives were taken to a boat shed owned by Coral. It's at this boat shed that police soon discover a mass grave. The media is quick to pick up the story and are on the scene when the bodies begin to be removed. Now, what's interesting is you can actually find video of this on YouTube when they're removing the bodies. And there's also a video of Elmer Wayne Henley calling his mother and telling his mother that he had shot Dean Coral and confessing to killing him on the news. So Henley knew that this was a massive grave at this boat shed. Yep. Yeah. And Henley's mother also knew that he had been hanging out with Coral these last years. Coral had come to dinner at their home. Oh, wow. Henley's mother's car had broken down and Coral had fixed it for. Her, so she was aware of the relationship. And wow. so you can hear it in his voice and in her voice that, they're both kind of shocked at what had, what had happened. But the bodies in the boat shed were only the beginning. Between 1970 and 1973, Dean Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. All of his victims were male and aged 13 to 20, the majority being in their mid-teens. So you called it a little bit earlier as far as the age range. He definitely had a preference. Well, I mean, once you, I was shocked that even a 19-year-old was brought over there because I feel like once a man turns 18, 19, 20, you know, I feel like they're they're not as easily to be overpowered as is a 13, 14, 15-year-old boy, you know? So I figured most of them had to be relatively young. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, all the victims were victims of opportunity. I know some were taken by force, but he definitely had a type when it came to picking out who his victims were going to be. 
Now, as we discussed earlier, the majority of the victims were taken from the Houston Heights area, which at the time was a low-income neighborhood northwest of downtown Houston. Again, several victims were friends of Henley and Brooks. Others were individuals that Coral himself had become acquainted with prior to their abduction and murder. Two victims, Billy Balch and Gregory Malley Winkle, had previously worked for the Coral Candy Company. Coral's victims were usually lured into one or two vehicles that he owned, either a Ford Econoline van or a Plymouth GTX. Occasionally, the trio would lure victims into the Corvette that Coral had bought for Brooks. They would entice the victim into the car with a promise of a party, drugs, or you know they simply may have needed a ride. The victims would then be taken back to Coral's home and provided with alcohol, pot, and other drugs. They would wait until the victim passed out or, in some cases, trick the victim into putting on the handcuffs. In some cases, they would also grab the victims by force. Now, at this point, the victim would be stripped naked and either tied to Coral's bed or usually a plywood torture board. Now, this board had holes drilled in the corner that allowed for ropes and handcuffs to be inserted and to subdue the victim. This was the board that Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams were tied to. Once restrained, the victims would be sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured, and sometimes after several days, killed by strangulation or shooting with Coral's 22 caliber pistol. The victim's body would then be wrapped in plastic sheeting and buried in one of four locations. A rented boat shed, the beach on Bolivar Peninsula, a woodland area near Lake Sam Rayburn where Coral's family owned a lakeside log cabin, or a beach in Jefferson County. On several occasions, Coral would have his victims phone or write their parents as to not raise suspicion about their disappearance. In many cases, Coral would also keep the keys of his victims as keepsakes. Now, Coral moved frequently during the time of the abductions and murders, but he always stayed close to the Houston Heights area until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of 1973. So where is your head at at this point, Olivia? Because we know that he's taking these boys. We know that, you know, he's got four burial locations picked out. This guy is seriously deranged. So, you know, what thoughts are in your head right now? So right now I just want to keep listening and hear more because I feel like there's so much more that's going to come from the story. But I want to know how Henley and Brooks kept this massive like sex ring murder heist under wraps for so many years i mean they're 15 year old boys how are they not telling their best buds about anything like i'm just so baffled right now honestly and i was definitely wondering that too being someone who at one point was a 15 year old boy it's hard for kids to keep secrets but i've also never been in this kind of position right where like i'm making the kind of money that i'm making from doing this and then really i mean i can't imagine what kind of friendships you would be able to have like outside of operating with this core group of people it seems like you would kind of isolate yourself and only be with, with these those people. three yeah like henley brooks and coral were probably always together all the time so we know that coral had killed at least a minimum of 28 people so what we're going to do now is take a look at the timeline and kind of see how coral henley and brooks evolved over the years so coral's first known victim was jeffrey conan now he was the teenager that we were talking about earlier who was hitchhiking home from college at some point on Conan's trip home, Coral offered the college freshman a ride. He took it, and David Brooks led police to Conan's body on August 10th, 1973. He was buried on High Island Beach, and the cause of death was determined to be manual strangulation. The body was found buried beneath a large boulder, covered in a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked, and bound hand and foot with a nylon cord, suggesting that he had been violated. Now, it was around the same time that Brooks had interrupted Coral in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys. This is when Coral offered to buy Brooks a Corvette in exchange for his silence, and Brooks accepted. Coral later told Brooks that he had killed the two youths and offered Brooks $200 for any boy he could lure to his home. On December 13, 1970, Brooks lured 14-year-old James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally to Coral's residence. Both youths were tied to the torture board, they were raped and strangled, and both boys were buried in the boat shed. Six weeks later, on January 30, 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking towards their family's home. The boys were lured into the vehicle and suffered the same fate as James Glass and Danny Yates. The Waldrop brothers were also buried in the boat shed. Between March and May of 1971, Coral abducted and killed three victims, all of whom lived in the Houston Heights area. All three victims were also buried towards the rear of the boat shed. 
On March 9th, 15-year-old Randall Harvey was abducted on his way to his part-time job as a gas station attendant. He was driven to Coral's residence and killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. On May 29th, David Hilligist and Gregory Malley Winkle were abducted and killed together. And those were the boys. Those were Brooks's friends or Henley's uh, friends. Yeah, those were the boys that that Henley knew, and Henley actually helped the parents put up missing the child. Flyers. Oh. Yeah, for Hilligist. In August of 1971, Coral and Brooks ran into a 17-year-old friend of Brooks named Reuben Watson Haney. He was walking home from a movie theater in Houston. Brooks persuaded Haney to come to a party at Coral's current residence. Haney agreed and entered the vehicle. He was driven to the home where he was strangled and again buried in the boat shed. Then, in September of 1971, two boys were abducted and killed by Coral and Brooks. One of these victims was kept alive for four days before being killed. The identity of the two victims from September are still unknown. It's now early 1972, and Henley assists by luring another unknown victim back to Coral's home. Again, the identity of this victim is still unknown. So I wanted to pause right there because we're now a year into it, and I feel like I'm just running a list here. So what are your thoughts? I feel like there's so many more to come, too. I mean, we know there's at least 28. I'm just baffled by this. I mean, honestly, I don't understand how this went on for so long. What is it, What is Coral getting out of this? I'm just so confused. Like, these are two young boys and a grown man luring basically their friends into this man's house knowing what the outcome was going to be. They're literally hand-feeding him these young men knowing that they're going to be killed, assaulted, raped, beaten, shot, and then just buried in a boat shed or at a beach under a boulder. Like, I'm just, I cannot believe this. Whenever you mentioned to me kind of about what your case was, you know, because I never like to read your notes ahead of time. I like to listen as as we record the podcast. I had no idea that there was going to be these two young men helping this grown man. I thought it was just going to be this old, like, pedophile man molesting these children or something. I had no idea what kind of, like, murder heist he had going on. Yeah, you and me both. Because I was like, oh, this is a serial killer. It's one dude. People who listen to this podcast know, like, I'm married. I have a kid. I've got stuff to do. I started doing my research. And eight hours later, literally a whole workday later, I was like, I think I'm done. And there was more that I still need to do. But I was like, I, I've spent eight hours of my life investing time into these murders. And I was like, that's enough for the day. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm just, I'm like, I have a shock factor right now. I'm just in shock, I think, honestly. Well, should we keep going? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> might as well. We've made it this far. Right. So a month later, on March 24th, 1972, Henley, Brooks, and Coral run into 18-year-old friend of Henley's named Frank Aguirre as he was leaving the restaurant that he worked at. Henley called Aguirre over to Coral's van and invited him to drink beer and smoke pot at Coral's home. While at the home, Aguirre picked up the pair of handcuffs. Coral then pounced on the teen, pushing him onto the table and handcuffing him behind his back. Henley later claimed that he didn't know Coral's true intention towards Aguirre when he asked him to come to the home. Henley claims that he had attempted to persuade Coral to not hurt Aguirre once he was bound and gagged by Brooks. It was at this point that Coral informed Henley that he had raped and murdered the first victim Henley brought to him, and he intended to do the same to Aguirre. So Henley at this point doesn't know what's happening? So I think at this point, according to Henley, he still believes that they are... Shipping them away. Yes, they're abducting them for this child sex ring. And then this is when Coral says, that boy that you helped me get that you thought I was sending in the sex ring, I raped him, I killed him, I'm about to do the same thing to your friend. Wow, okay. Henley ultimately helped Coral and Brooks with burying Aguirre at High Island Beach. Now, despite learning that Coral was murdering the boys that he and Brooks lured for him, Henley continued to remain an active participant. On April 20th, 1972, Henley assisted in the abduction of 17-year-old Mark Scott. Scott, who was friends with Brooks and Henley, was grabbed by force and fought furiously against Coral's attempts to restrain him, even attempting to stab his attackers. Scott then noticed Henley pointing a gun at him, and according to Brooks, at that point, he just kind of gave up. Scott was tied to the torture bed and suffered the same fate as Aguirre. He was raped, tortured, strangled, and buried at High Island Beach. 
I mean, this one is their friend. I mean, not that other ones weren't their friend. But, like, they're bringing their friends. So, at this point, I feel like Brooks and Henley are just as messed up as Coral is in the in the head. Well, I think you're going to notice, too, as we go on, I think that starts to show a little more. So, on June 26, 1972, Henley assisted in the murder of two boys, Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. In Brooks' confession, he stated that both boys were tied to Coral's bed, and after their rape and torture, Henley manually strangled Balch. Henley then shouted, hey, Johnny, and shot DeLome in the head. The bullet entered the forehead and exited through the boy's ear, but didn't kill him. DeLome then pleaded with Henley before he was strangled. Both boys were buried at High Island Beach. I think at this point, Brooks and Henley are in, are finding some enjoyment and pleasure out of now murdering and torturing these young boys. I think probably now at this point, it's been three years and they've at least Brooks has seen enough of it. And now I think Henley's just like, okay, well, this is what I've been doing. I might as well just jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. And I also thought about it a lot in the same way that we think of victims of like sexual abuse, like the statistics where it comes to like the number of people who are sexually abused as a child then become sexual abusers. Mm hmm. So when you've gone through this, when you've been groomed, and again, I mean, their hands are not clean. I mean, you know, I'm not excusing anything that they did, but I think that by being groomed, by falling into this cycle and being taken advantage of this person, they then kind of become active participants and then begin to commit these crimes themselves. You know? Yeah, yeah. Around the same time, the trio lured 19-year-old William Riddinger to Coral's residence. Rittinger was tied to the plywood board, tortured, and abused by Coral. Brooks later claimed that he convinced Coral to release Rittinger, and the boy left the home. This is where things are about to get spilled. You would think. But again, yeah. I think I, I've got a whole lot more to my list here. And I get, again, I think it's part of, in this period of time... Mm -hmm. People don't talk about stuff. Right. If something like that happened to you, Tim Curley who was the victim who survived from the party had an interview where he said, I've had many days in my life. That was one day. And if I let that day be the day that defines everything, then what's the point of living? Right. And I think that's very much the mindset that people had at that time where bad things happen to you. Move on. Right. You keep going. And I, th I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, at this time, there was a stigma around homosexuality. I mean, mm -hmm. there still is, but not to the extent that it was then. Right. So I don't know if maybe, you know, someone who had something like this happen to them, if they would be hesitant to say this is what happened, like some kind of shame or, mm -hmm. you know, the same way that women don't report being sexually assaulted right away all the time, you know? Yeah. Now, also around this time, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious as he entered Coral's home. Brooks was tied to Coral's bed and assaulted multiple times before being released. Despite the assault, Brooks continued to help Coral in the abduction of his victims. Brooks convinces Coral to release Redinger, and because of that, he is now a victim of abuse. It's like, okay, I'll let him go, but you're going to take the punishment instead. This is just disgusting. What I found in the research is it's actually it's on a different day, but it seems very much like that. Where like I let this boy go, you're gonna take the punishment. Then the next time he comes over, Henley knocks him unconscious, and then Coral proceeds to assault him. But again, looking at this as someone who you know obviously hasn't experienced this, you would think that that would be enough to be like, I've got to get away from this person, and he's still willing to be an active participant, which is just crazy to me. In the summer of 1972, Coral killed another two victims. 17-year-old Stephen Sickman was seen leaving a party in the Heights on July 19th. Sickman was bludgeoned about the chest via a blunt instrument before he was strangled. He was buried in the boathouse. On August 21st, 19-year-old Roy Bunton was abducted while walking home from his job at a shoe store. Bunton was gagged with a towel and had tape placed over his mouth. He was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed. On October 2nd, 1972, Henley and Brooks abducted Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry as they walked to Hembry's home. They were taken to the apartment that Coral was residing in at the time. That night, Simino is known to have phoned his mother and shouted, Mama, into the receiver before the phone went dead. The following morning, Hembry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley with a bullet exiting through his neck. 
A few hours later, the teens were strangled to death. Again, they were buried in the boat shed directly above James Glass and Danny Yates. Sometime the following month, 18-year-old Willard Branch disappeared while hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston, Texas. His gagged and emasculated body was buried in the boat shed. On November 5, 1972, 19-year-old Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth to call his fiance. Kepner was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. At this point, 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 had been murdered between February and November of 1972. Jeez, this is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. And again, to think that nobody was linking these things together. Yeah, they're all runaways. Yeah. Now, of the 10, five of these victims were buried in the boat shed, while the other five were buried at High Island Beach. On January 20th, 1973, Coral had moved into yet another residence in the Spring Branch area of Houston. Within two weeks of moving into the residence, he had killed 17-year-old Jacob Lyles. Lyle was known to Coral and Brooks as he lived on the same street as Brooks. Now, no victims are known to be killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. Coral is known to have suffered from a hydrocele, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's an accumulation of body fluid in a body cavity. Yeah, hydrocele is basically fluid, like a fluid sac, basically around the testes. So around his testicles. Okay. So that would probably definitely put him out of commission for sexually assaulting his victims for a little while. Yeah, I don't partake in any of the behavior like we're talking about in the story. However, if I had a bunch of fluid around my testicle, I wouldn't be doing anything. I would just... <laughs> I'd be sitting on, on the couch. So Think of it like getting a vasectomy or something. Just painful. It definitely makes sense why he wouldn't have been doing anything in that time frame. Yeah. So because of this, law enforcement believes that this may have actually contributed to the period of inactivity. Now, around this time, Henley actually moved away from the area in an attempt to distance himself from Coral. However, in June of 1973, Coral's rate of killing began to increase. Additionally, Henley and Brooks later testified that the brutality of the crimes increased. The pair described Coral as having a type of bloodlust towards its victims, which is kind of hard to imagine that these crimes could become any more brutal. Yeah, worse than they already are and more frequent. Right. So on June 4th, 1973, Coral and Henley abducted 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. Lawrence was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and again buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 6, 1973, Henley began attending driving school classes where he became acquainted with 15-year-old Homer Luis Garcia. The following day, Garcia called his mother to say he was staying at a friend's house. Garcia never returned. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Coral's bathtub before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, on July 12th, 17-year-old John Sellers was bound, shot to death, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Then, in July of 1973, Brooks married his pregnant fiance. I have something to say about this. What? When did Brooks have time to go impregnate a woman? When did he have time to date? Where did this fiance come from? And, that, what, what, and was Coral okay with this? It makes me think about other famous serial killers, right? Like BTK you know, was out murdering women binding him up, torturing, killing him. And then, you know, he was married. He had children. He was active in his church. Yeah, that's true. It's almost like you have to have this other side of you. Maybe it's almost like a like a front or a facade to be like, see, I'm normal. Look how normal I am. I've got a fiance. She's pregnant. I'm not murdering teenage boys on the reg. You know what I mean? I'm shocked that Coral was okay with this because now Brooks is married and has a child on the way. And I feel like at this point, when you're in a relationship that deep with someone, you start to confide in them. And so I'm shocked that Brooks would let that Coral would let Brooks have a relationship like that. Yeah. And part of me wonders if the relationship was actually really that deep or if again, it was just kind of a facade, kind of a front relationship. The other thing that it makes me think about is like Stockholm syndrome, right? So like, you know, there's people who get kidnapped. They are with their captor for so long that they can let them go and be like, yeah, go shopping or go to McDonald's or whatever. And they don't run for help. They just, you know, go get whatever and they come back, you know, because it's all they know. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
it seems obvious to me that there are different layers of trauma and abuse that are keeping these boys in this cycle, you know, which is, it's just crazy to think. Mm-hmm. Now, while Brooks was off marrying his pregnant fiance, Henley temporarily became the primary source of victims for Coral. One of the victims was 15-year-old Michael Balch. Michael was a brother of a former victim, Billy Balch. I have another thing to say. This is the second set of siblings. These families have two children that have gone missing, and still I feel like there's no investigation. Like, if I was a mother, I don't care what time of frame it was in life, now two of my young children have gone missing, and the cops are just going to tell me that both of my children just ran away. Doubtful. Yeah, and especially to have one of your children disappear, and then a year later, right, another one disappears. Like, first, what are the odds? You know what I mean? And second, I'm right there with you. I'd be pounding the pavement. I'd be calling the cops every single day. Like, I would not let it rest. And, you know, to their credit, what's crazy about the story is because it happened so long ago, most of the parents and family members aren't alive anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they may have done that. They may have been calling the police. We just don't know. We just don't know. Yeah. Now, Michael was last seen on July 19th, 1973, on his way to get a haircut. Balch was strangled and buried at Lake Ray Sandburn. Charles Cobb and Marty Ray Jones were both abducted on July 25th. Henley buried both bodies in the boat shed on his own. Coral killed his final victim, 13-year-old James Stanton Dramala, on August 3rd, 1973. Coral and Brooks lured Dramala into the car by promising him a large amount of returnable bottles. Once at Coral's home, Dramala was tied to the plywood board, raped, and tortured. He was then strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. On August 8th, Dean Coral was killed by Elmer Wayne Henley. Jeez. So five days later. Now, at this point, Henley was brought to trial in San Antonio, Texas in July of 1974. He was charged with the murders of six teenage boys that he himself had lured to Coral's various homes between March of 1972 and July of 1973. The prosecutors presented 82 pieces of evidence throughout Henley's trial, including the written confession that he had provided police on August 8th of 1973. Other pieces of evidence included a wooden box that was used to transport the victim's bodies to the various burial sites. Within the wooden box were various strands of hair that investigators were able to conclude came from Charles Cobble. The plywood torture board was also entered into evidence and displayed to the jury. Additionally, 25 witnesses testified to Henley's involvement. This included Detective David Mulliken, who testified that Henley had informed him that the trio would handcuff the victims to the board and sometimes to a wall with their mouths taped so they couldn't make any noise. At the advice of counsel, Henley did not testify on his own behalf. On July 16, 1974, after hearing closing arguments from both the defense and prosecution, the jury retired to begin deliberations. It only took one hour for the jury to find Henley guilty of all six murders and sentence him to six back-to-back 99-year life sentences. And I don't know if you remember, but when we did Larry Jean Bell, it took them one hour to be like, nope. So seems like some of these guys, there's so much evidence that... Just like, yeah, they did it. Now, having been in a murder court... yes i'm now the expert of mortar court it mortar it's a mortar it's a mortar court i'm in new orleans okay yeah but it it didn't surprise me at all that it only took him an hour after going through the story i was like yeah i mean clearly and he probably it seems like he confessed to most of the crimes i'm just really mad that henley killed coral and coral's not suffering because of all of this yeah when i read the hour i was like would have taken me 45 minutes. <laughs> 20. But no, I'm, I agree with you that, you know, it seems like in the grand scheme of things, Coral got off light. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Henley's conviction was overturned after filing and winning an appeal. He was granted a new trial in June of 1979, but was again found guilty of all six murders and again sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. Because he is guilty. Very guilty. Because he confessed. Yes. He said, hey, I did it. Henley first became eligible for parole in July of 1980. At every parole hearing, he has been denied. His next eligible parole hearing date is October 2025, and Henley will be 69 years old. 
He did all of this when he was 15 years old, and he is eligible for parole in like three years. Yep. And what's also crazy is because, again, this seems like it was so long ago. You know, we're talking like 1970. Yeah. But, I mean, think about him being alive and, like, an, a possibility for him to actually, like, get out of prison. Yes. And he has done multiple interviews. So, again, you can find those interviews on YouTube. So, if you want to, you know, hear what this guy sounds like and what he see what he looks like. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Now, David Brooks was tried for the June 1973 murder of Billy Ray Lawrence in February of 1975. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment on March 4th of the same year. Brooks died of COVID-19 complications in May of 2020. What? Yep. What dang COVID. Henley was like the last one brought to the group. And he's the one, I mean, they're all guilty by any means, but... Coral got off easy. Brooks dies of, dies of COVID. I mean, come on. Yeah. What's my surprise? So, Olivia, normally we would cover a case like this and we'd be like, well, that's enough, right? Like, that's super dark. It's a crazy case on its own. In doing my research, however, I found that this case may actually be connected to another case. What? Yes. So... For people who are listening to this episode, you may notice some similarities between Dean Coral, the Texas Candyman, and the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy of Chicago. Are you familiar with the John Wayne Gacy case? No. Okay. So John Wayne Gacy killed 33 young boys, uh-huh. all in the same age range. Now, he actually bragged that he killed more people than Coral did. And the handcuff trick, I don't know if you remember, we were talking about they would put the handcuffs on and be like, look, I got it off behind my back. Now you try. Yeah. Gacy has openly admitted to stealing that from Dean Coral. What? So earlier in the podcast, we had mentioned that Coral had claimed to work for a sex trafficking ring out of Dallas. And in researching the case, what I did find is that there was a gentleman in Dallas at the same time named John David Norman. Now, in 1973, John David Norman, his home was raided. They found hundreds of booklets with names and pictures of young men, and detectives actually believed that they had busted a sex trafficking ring. When the home was raided, Norman was actually sitting at the table with two underage boys. What? Yes. John David Norman was recruiting teens to go around the country as prostitutes. He would solicit through a newsletter called the Odyssey Foundation, and it was a scheme that was disguised as offering self-help through travel programs. So you would travel to a wealthy businessman, or one of the gentlemen in doing my research was actually the owner of a baseball team, and then when he got charged, he just disappeared. Nobody ever saw him again. But in reality, it was kids for rent. John David Norman gets arrested. He goes to prison. After he gets out of prison, he moves to Chicago, which is where John Wayne Gacy operated out of. He continues to do the same thing. Somebody makes a anonymous report that he's assaulting someone in his home, gets arrested again, goes to jail in Illinois. While in jail in Illinois, he meets Philip Paskey. Philip Paskey is a young kid, early 20s. They form a close relationship. Paskey gets released early then john david norman gets released and they end up moving in together and they pick up their newsletter business again so now they're again it's the same scheme you know travel grow then john david norman gets arrested again for similar charges paskey needs a job so he goes to work for john wayne gacy what yes what john wayne gacy was a contractor so he would do you know, tear down drywall, all this stuff. So Paskey goes to work for John Wayne Gacy. And John Wayne Gacy had alleged that he actually didn't kill these boys, that it was Paskey and John David Norman, and they were using his home as the burial ground. So after John Wayne Gacy committed to doing all of these murders, when trying to get an appeal, that's when his story changed. But the connection between him being in Dallas at that time, then being in Illinois, the the killers using very similar motives, very similar techniques is absolutely crazy. So if you're listening, if you're interested, there is a documentary you can watch on Discovery Plus. It is called The Clown and the Candyman. 
and it explores the link between the two. Uh, I've started, I haven't finished it. Maybe we could do a bonus episode and get like real deep into it. But if you're interested, check it out because it's really good. That's insane. That's crazy. This has been a very sad, but very interesting turn of events. I will say. Yeah, it was definitely uh, intense doing the research. Like I said, you know, I was home. The kid was on the iPad. <laughs> I, like, had my, I was like, I'm sitting at the table. Like, you stay in there. She can't read yet or anything, so I don't know what I was worried about. But <laughs> I was just like, separate, separate, separate. But that's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, again, I know it's dense. I know it's kind of dark. But I want to ask you, where does this fall on the deadbolt test for you? I'm going to put this one for me on the deadbolt test about a four because i'm not their i'm not their kind of victim it's scary it's disgusting it's disturbing i mean it's all the words that i could think of to describe it but i mean i'm obviously a female we're now in 2022 no um but i'm i'm a female i'm not their you know perfect victim but the fact that people out there can commit crimes like that means that there's people out there that i am the victim for and so that leaves a little unsettling thought in the back of my head. But I mean, I think if you watched me here, you saw me with my jaw dropped the whole time, just like, okay, keep reading. And it continues and it continues and it continues. So this one's definitely one for the books. But yeah, that's where I'm going to rate it on the deadbolt test. Where are you rating it on the deadbolt test? Yeah. And before I give my rating, I have to tell you, I definitely understand because when we did Derek Todd Lee for episode number two, mm-hmm. it was very similar for me, Derek Todd Lee, you know, why I am quite voluptuous. I'm not his type, You're right? not his type. <laughs> right. So for me, I think this would be an eight. And the reason that I give it an eight is that I was a teenage boy at one point. Yeah. Right? I had friends. I got invited to do things. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'd bump into one of my buddies and they'd be like, hey, you want to, like, we're going here. Do you want to go? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, sure. You know what I mean? So the idea that you think you could be going with somebody that you trust. You think you could be going with somebody that you, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, we're just going to have a good time. I know this person. Then you end up strapped to a board or, you know, handcuffed. buried under, yeah. Handcuffed or buried under a boat shed. Yeah. Raised. Is, I mean, all the things. I think the other thing that really gets under my skin about this is that there were so many boys that were disappearing at once that even without a national database or even without police departments communicating together the way they do now. This was in one area. It's not like it was like Dallas and Houston and Right. This was, is all in the outskirts or around the Houston area. And I don't understand how the I mean, it just was the time and I hate to keep saying that, but like how did these parents and I mean, I would be fighting tooth and nail for my child, you know, and I know that you would do the same. I just don't understand how it just got swept under the rug. And maybe it didn't. Maybe people kept going and things. And maybe there was a detective somewhere who had these thoughts. And we just don't know about that person because they're not alive. But you're 100% right. You know, they could have been. But I think for me, the idea of something happening to me and just being forgotten, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. something happening and people just being like, well, I'm not going to look, you know? Or, or just being the unknown. I mean, and there's so many of the unknown children still that are missing and that's just heartbreaking too so that's where we land on the deadbolt test this week but we want to know where do you fall on the deadbolt test after listening to this episode dean coral the candy man of texas are you a one are you a four like olivia eight like me maybe this one really got under your skin you're sitting at a 10 we want to hear from you we want to know what you think find us on the socials we are on instagram at check the locks pod Twitter at Check the Locks. And please join our Facebook group. The link is in the show description. We are in there hanging out, having fun. The group of people that are interacting in there every single day, they're so much fun. I just love the support and like people throwing up memes and, and posting what they think of the episode. It's so much fun. Olivia, I think we should read a five-star review. What do you think? Absolutely. Yes, I love reading the five-star reviews. Can I get a drum roll for this one? this week's five-star review comes from deadbolt debbie i love the name so deadbolt debbie said i'm so excited i get to start at the ground floor with these two they are awesome and do amazing research i'm always so invested by the end that i want next week's episode right away only downside is having to wait a week but is well worth it love y'all so much So thank you so much, Deadbolt Debbie, and I love, love, love your name. 
Deadbolt, Debbie, that is awesome. We love you so much. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast and supporting it and sharing those kind words. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. Anybody who shares a review, again, we're going to try to read as many of them on the show as we can. But if you take the time to write out some nice words, you know, you take time out of your day to let us know what you think of the show. Just know that it means the absolute world to us. We really do appreciate it. We appreciate the love and the support. And Deadbolt Debbie, you are 100% awesome. So make sure, again, slide into our DMs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever social. Let us know that it's you. We'll send you out some goodies. We got stickers. We got magnets. We got all sorts of stuff, pins. We'd love to send you something. If you are not a social person, check out checkthelockspod.com. Hit that contact button. Send us an email, and we will get it out to you that way. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the show, how can they do that? Well, you need to go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review, and hopefully you'll be the lucky winner who gets your five-star review read next week. That's right. Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. And that is it, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's truly terrifying true crime case. We will see you guys next week with a brand new episode. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you guys next week.